Sir, what's your favourite colour? Orange. Blue. And some of the oranges I've seen. Using enzymes. It's a very outside of the box use of colour, I think. Industrial dyeing industry has a lot to answer for. So this is really like the James Bond film, the adaptive camouflage of the car. Traffic's overboard as you say, oh, is it green powder? We have literally no idea what that yellow stuff does. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. No matter where you are or when you are, you're listening to Made Of The Good Stuff. The podcast where we take a look at the world around us and really delve into what it's made from. And what makes that the good stuff? I'm your host Latham, and for our inaugural episode, we're going on a journey into the world of colour. From the handsome hues of your bottles of gin to the prismatic pigmentation of the butterfly wing. Oscar Wilde, the renowned poet and playwright, once said, May colour, unspoiled by meaning and unallied with definite form, can speak it to the soul in a thousand different ways. A line somewhat more thought-provoking than what one would find in an ordinary Christmas cracker. Colour has been a part of chronicling human history for nearly half a million years, with the earliest known use of pigments being in a cave in Zambia, with pigment grinding equipment that is dated as being around 400,000 years old. Iron oxide and ochre, a clay-derived pigment, were amongst the first of their kind being used to produce the famous Upper Paleolithic cave paintings from over 40,000 years ago. Since then, their use has blossomed into a most wonderful world of artistry and expression. Contrary to popular belief, colour is more than just an aesthetic property, but dazzling the eyes of many. Scientists and engineers have been using colour as a tool to finding out information about materials for hundreds of years. Blacksmiths would use the colour of the glow given off by hot materials, referred to as the incandescence, to determine if a metal was hot enough to forge. Chemists have used colour to predict what form elements had taken when reacted into a compound. But even with all these amazing accreditations of colour, the question remains, what is colour? And that's quite a difficult concept to explain. Colour as we know it, it's just the manifestation from our eyes of different wavelengths of visible light. That is, electromagnetic radiation of wavelengths that we can perceive. Now, electromagnetic radiation can have wavelengths spanning orders of magnitude, from radio waves that transmit the dulcet tones of Jeremy Vine on a morning on the order of metres, to gamma rays with wavelengths less than the width of an atom, which can be used for applications from microbe removal in the food industry to even some forms of cancer treatment. Visible light, however, sits in the band of around 380 to 740 nanometers, encompassing every colour you could possibly imagine. Now, the way that this colour comes about depends on the circumstances. When packets of light, called photons, reach a surface, they're often reflected, but can sometimes be absorbed, and it is this light that is reflected that is the colour we see. An excellent example of this is Vantablack, a material that is in fact so black that it absorbs over 99.9% of incoming light. A few years after its discovery, a spray paint version of this Vantablack was produced, and an artist by the name of Anish Kapoor tried to take total legal control of the colour. This caused quite a stir in the artist community, with an artist by the name of Stuart Semple taking total control of the pinkest pink, and specifically said that only artists who were not Anish Kapoor can use it. 
Many of the pigments that we have developed over thousands of years have originated from inorganic materials, such as lapis lazuli blue or malachite green, very similar to the ochre pigments that we talked about before. But we also derive some of our pigments from nature, such as cochineal, a red dye from crushed beetles. And this had me thinking about whether we could look at how nature uses colour, not just produces it. So I spoke with Chris Holland, the head of the Natural Materials Research Group and senior lecturer in the Department of Material Science and Engineering at the University of Sheffield. During our conversation, he showed me a book by a gentleman called Andrew Parker, titled Seven Deadly Colours, The Genius of Nature's Palette, and began to amaze me with the incredible array of applications of colour within nature that sometimes we didn't even think would be possible. But before even touching on the concept of natural colour, I was amazed to find an interesting tale about the modern pharmaceutical industry. Fascinating stories about colour. Um, right. So colour, really, really um, important. They wanted to move from using these natural sources to making synthetic sources of the pigmentations, these small molecules, uh, but they had to do scale-up. So they made these big um, uh, sort of industrial-sized factories for scaling up um, pigments. Um, really, really popular in Germany. They were processing all of these things, um, and then the sort of the war kicked off, and it turned out that there was less of a need for pigmentation. And as a result of the war, uh, lots of other countries developed their own ability to create pigments for dyes. And so, what happened is that the dyeing industry in uh, Germany after the war basically died, <laughs> um, and there wasn't uh, the need for these large factories. And so they started thinking, well, what small molecules can we make in these large factories? Because they're all just big reactors uh, that would generate us money. And that's basically where the modern pharma industry was born. And it came from the reuse of originally textile dye-producing factories and using their reactors to make small molecules for pharmaceuticals. And that's, and that's why a lot of the pharmaceutical industry came from Germany, because it was a reuse of their product. So the infrastructure that was already there was yeah. completely Yeah, they were just like, sure, we're going to make this small aromatic molecule, why don't we just make this one and sell it as a medicine? Which is really cool. And so colour has this sort of really important sort of sidelines in terms of generating innovation. You can see it as a culturally important thing where um, status is associated with the difficulties of obtaining those materials and then actually getting those materials that I guess like during the, the Roman period where there was the purple... Yeah. Where they had to extract from like tiny mollusks, didn't they? To crush up really small mollusks. Oh my gosh. Thousands of yeah, them yeah, 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 yeah. To produce this one particular shade of purple, and it became the royal purple. Kind of like the same thing with Victoria. Oh, that's really cool. So, um, you know, colours are, are really important. We see, obviously, from an industrial perspective, really, really important in nature as well. But apart from being able to extract colour from natural sources, I was wondering how was colour used by nature? Um, coloration serves. Uh, I would say sort of two basic sort of purposes in nature. Uh, it is crypsis, so that's basically to hide yourself, trying to make yourself as less conspicuous as possible so that you're not eaten by something. And that may be using browns to hide yourself against like a, a tree <laughs> so oh, that yeah. a bird doesn't eat you. Um, or from sort of really bright colourful examples such as um, uh, an orchid mantis, which literally looks like... Um, an orchid flower and it's, it's sort of like a white and you know there's been selection to sort of make that as inconspicuous as possible uh, and it uses that not to 
hide from predators, but to hide from its prey, so it can sneak up to it, and then some sort of unknowing bee will f- think it's a f- <laughs> think it's a flower, fall on it, and the mantis gets to eat it. So you use color to either hide from things, mm-hmm. or you use color to display your own fitness. So when we refer to fitness in a biological sense, that's sort of like your sexual fitness, your reproductive fitness, um, as an advertisement to attract the opposite sex. The reason why colour is a very good thing in terms of advertisement is that making those colours and costs resources. So if I am particularly fit, which means that I'm very, very good at extracting resources from my environment. That may be I'm a good hunter or I'm a plant that's very, very good at sucking up all the nutrients from the soil. If I have an excess of that, I can put them to good use uh, uh, in making a display. And that display could be you know, brightly coloured feathers, it could be brightly coloured leaves, which are flowers that make me more attractive for um, pollinators. And resources put into coloration uh, can be used for attracting the opposite sex. If you don't and aren't very good at extracting those resources, you can't buy essentially the expensive colours, which means that you're less fit. So colour is very, very important in that respect. There's one other example of colour, I suppose, is, is, is like warning markations. So things like poison, poison, dart, frog. Yeah, poison dart frogs um, are really good examples of that where you are so conspicuous, you are noticed, mm-hmm. but it's stay away from me because I'm going to give you a tummy ache if you have a go at me. Um, that does lead to potentially some interesting situations with cheats. So it may be actually that I just make myself look really, really conspicuous, mm-hmm. but I don't produce poison because nothing eats me because I look brightly coloured and poisonous. So why am I investing more resources into making a poison as well as making the signal? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem with cheats, and you will always get cheats in any population who like put less resources into an actual thing because they rely on other people yeah. giving off the same impression. Um, it only takes your predator to work out, actually, they're not that poisonous. But after that ominous ending to the discussion on cheats, we then turned on to how do we perceive colour and how does the eye work? It was one of the first tutorials that I had in my undergraduate degree and it was discussing the evolution of the eye. And the eye is a really interesting organ because it's something that allows an organism to perceive a certain part of the electromagnetic spectrum Um, and that information allows it to be more successful in its environment. It can find a resource, be that something to eat or something to avoid um, and it makes it more successful because the ability to perceive let's just say visible light even though that's tautologist because of course it's visible you've got an eye to see it um, <laughs> but to see that sort of set of wavelengths um, uh, has evolved multiple times so our eyes in uh, mammals are very very different to the eyes of um, insects they're very, very different to the eyes of um, a range of different types of uh, organisms. And there was no one thing that had an eye that every, all the other um, organisms evolved from. So the eye has 
appeared multiple times in nature, and that's an example of um, convergent evolution. So there's independent evolutionary events, but they all move towards building a structure that can perceive the environment. That's pretty cool, um, because if we are to look at an insect eye, it's, it's a compound eye. This is a, uh, an eye that has essentially hundreds of miniature little um, receptors at the bottom of tiny little, you'd almost imagine them as like telescopes. You have a little lens on top and it fires down to very small individual um, light receptors. And that mosaic of receptors can then sort of form together. The brain interprets that as a pattern and you get an image. That's quite different to the types of eyes that we have. Lens-based eyes, and I can't remember what they're actually called, but ultimately that is a single orifice, single way of letting in light, a lens that then focuses it onto a patch of receptors. That's much how like our mobile phone works or any kind of like standard CCD-based. Um, so rather than having a, an array of sensors and each has an individual lens, you have one lens and a whole sort of focusing onto a spot of um, photosensitivity. That has evolved a couple of times. You see that in like mammals and reptiles, and they have a single common ancestor. Uh, but uh, you'll notice it in things like uh, octopuses or cuttlefish. They have the same kind of structure inside. Of yeah, it's quite cool. They have like a lens and uh, a hole for the eye. Um, those are the better types of eyes because you get certain types of specializations and also the different types of photoreceptors that you have in the back of the eye um, uh, tunes the wavelengths of light that you can see and so then if we look at things like budgerigars they can see into the UV so they have the ability to perceive markings on their um, mate's body that represent their fitness that humans can't see because we can't see into the ultraviolet but budgies can so they look really quite different actually um, if, if you're to sort of like look at the papers that discuss that so coloration is very very important um, developing the ability to see that is also really really important as well well that was one of the one of the evolutionary advantages for humans being able to see different colours was seeing ripe fruit in the trees and things like that so like being able to distinguish ah, that's very so like interesting. a yellow and green banana Mm. With red green colour blindness being one of the most common forms of colour blindness, that would there's been indication that that is one of the sources behind it is that evolutionary defect of not having gained that red green perception capability. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, I like that a lot. So differentiating between ripe and unripe fruit. Yeah, but it comes at a cost. So the cost of humans being able to see colour means that the way in which our eyes are built firstly our eyes are built back to front which is a bit weird actually in the way that the nerves the the bits the wiring that connects our photoreceptor cells to our brain is occurs before the sensor so if you can imagine like literally switching your sensor backwards so the wires are in front so the light has to go through the wires before it hits the sensitive bit which is just really dumb, but we're stuck with that. We can't evolve a new way around. Yeah, because humans have a 15-degree blind spot. Yes. Because yeah, I always remember seeing you know, a few years ago where someone would get you to cover your eye 
cover one eye and hold a pencil with a rubber at the end of it. It sort of disappears at a certain... If you looked forward and then moved it about 15 degrees to one side, the tip of the pencil would disappear out of view. Yeah. They, um, and, and, and so one of the other problems with our um, colour photoreceptors in our eyes is that they are a little bit insensitive in terms of their the threshold of photons hitting them, i.e. essentially the sensitivity or the signal-to-noise ratio, is not as good as our um, rods, which are black-white photorece photoreceptors. And so humans have two types of photoreceptors, rods, which are black and white, and cones, which are colour. Our cones offer us colour, but sacrifice in terms of sensitivity. Now, we have all of our colour receptors in the centre of our eye, but uh, on the peripheral of our eye, that's where we have our um, uh, rods. So it's, it's our black-white receptors. The general hypothesis is that um, if something's going to sneak up on you quickly, you need to be able to detect something coming from your peripheral vision fast, so you have your fastest receptors. You don't care what colour it is, <laughs> if it's coming towards you, um, you see it from the corner of your eye. Um, that actually plays quite an important part if you're stargazing. So if you're stargazing and trying to look up, you will see the, you'll have real difficulty focusing on stars with at very low light conditions, whereas you're much better off just looking to the side slightly and letting your rods see the light. And it works really well, so you can't see stars clearly looking straight on, but if you look slightly to the side, you can actually see the really faint distant stars. And that's a consequence of the way that our eyes are built. So there's a clever trick for seeing the stars, and there are clever tricks used by animals to not be seen. But what about those animals that really don't want to be seen? Ah, uh, I mean, we could talk about the master of camouflage, obviously. Octopuses God. and chromophores. Oh, my golly gosh. So, adaptive camouflage. So this truly is smart materials. I mean, if the military can get their hands on a technology that allows this to happen easily with low energy input, um, you know, they'd be going absolutely crazy for it. But in a lot of... Um, uh, in, in a lot of invertebrates, so and specifically molluscan uh, invertebrates, so octopuses, cuttlefish, um, they are able to create these beautiful displays of differences in coloration, and they can use this for signaling to one another, quite almost literally like a Morse code in cuttlefish. They can use it to um, describe their sort of behavioural state people want to call that emotional state, that's up to them, but behavioural state, if they're sort of like angry or threatened or sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, in love, uh, you could, um, but what they do is that they have a whole range of cells on their body and uh, these cells have these tiny little black balls of, well they're little vesicles inside their body, uh, inside their cells, these little pouches of uh, pigment. And they, these balloons of pigment, you can imagine. I mean, we're talking tiny. They live inside cells. Um, they can uh, essentially inflate or deflate these balloons really quickly. So they can stretch them or contract them. If they stretch them, uh, essentially they can 
appear different coloration or they can move them closer towards the surface of the skin or move them further away from the surface of the skin. So it's almost a little bit like the way some e-papers work with titanium dioxide particles that are either charged to move out towards the edge of the paper or sort of in uh, away in sort of like this pool of uh, ink. It's quite clever actually how e-paper works. Um, but these things can happen really, really quickly. So using nervous control, they are able to expand or contract these um, uh, melanocytes, I think they're called, inside their body, and that allows them to change colour. And change colour is more about a, a shade of colour, we would say. We're not imagining sort of uh, something that sort of goes from very, very sort of bright red to bright blue. That's not going to happen, but you'll see different shades. Another example is like chameleons for example. Um, it was quite often thought that chameleons used, uh, were, were clever that they could change their coloration as a way of cryptus to hide themselves, but apparently it's it's now been shown it's more just about how happy or angry they are. Shown to be more yeah, so it's an emotional state. thing, yeah, it's behavioural state uh, with them. But things like cuttlefish and octopuses are really, really clever because they do use it to hide. So there are some fantastic examples of octopuses that uh, you know you'd think it was a piece of seaweed zipping around, um, but uh, they're very 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 good at hiding. And not only that, they have the ability to sense colour on one side of their body and then project that colour on the other side of their body. So this is really like the James Bond film with the adaptive camouflage of the car, where <laughs> they've got micro cameras on one side and they project the image on the other side. And that's already been shown in the military with these adaptive panels and they've sort of taken inspiration from nature to do that. Normally they do that to sort of hide their heat signature from infrared, uh, but you can get panels for tanks that have been inspired by the way in which cuttlefish and octopuses hide from uh, predators by uh, doing that. Um, but yeah, in general, they do some very, very clever things with colour. So we've delved into all these wonderful ways that nature uses colour. But what if there was another way that we could create colour other than using a pigment? You have this idea of pigments, uh, but the problem with pigments in general is that if you bombard them with enough light, they ultimately fade, because you're literally breaking down those small molecules. So another way around this is you create something that isn't a pigment, and it isn't the fact that it absorbs and reflects light uh, at different... You create a structure that absorbs light, um, apart from reflecting a very narrow wavelength back. So a good example of this is the iridescence on morpho butterflies. So butterflies have wings that have lots of little scales on them. And if you can imagine sort of almost like corrugated cardboard, the inside bit of corrugated cardboard, you've got ridges. Imagine those ridges a thousand times thinner than a human hair and uh, very, very well organized. Well, what happens is that those ridges essentially capture all of the light that lands on it apart from a very narrow wavelength, and in this case for morpho butterfly, it's blue, and that gets reflected back. So you can imagine it as almost like a little uh, cattle grid, a grating that lets everything through, apart from reflecting back a very specific wavelength. And that is not due to a chemical. It's not a chemical that is going to break down or sort of you know undergo any kind of chemical reaction. Um, it is a structure, and that structure is always there. 
that's really, really important for um, animals because that means that it's never going to fade. So if you're going to create something that makes you more attractive to the opposite sex or you're going to make something that uh, helps hide you better, you don't want it to fade in the sunlight. And so structural coloration is a really, really clever way around that because if you were to view it in other wavelengths of light, you don't see a colour. There is no colour. The colour is only a result of the reflection of the light, not the inherent properties of the material. Which is weird to get your head around, but quite clever in that respect. Um, yeah, and that's where you get your essence from. It's this repeated organisation of um, structures that only reflect a very specific wavelength based on the spacing between those structures. So we talked about the blue morpho butterfly wing, but we also talked about a pair of blue jeans. Chris spoke briefly about the impact of textiles and dyeing. The industrial dyeing industry has a lot to answer for because they are serious polluters. Serious polluters. Um, it's probably worth having a little look up on in terms of like manufacturing of dyes and just how bad it is for the environment. Really? Yeah, it's pretty shocking actually. As in, because a lot of it's small molecule synthesis. Or even if you like, like look at the textile industry and the amount of like pollutants that it creates, it's absolutely huge. There's something ridiculous like two thousand liters of water are used to make a single pair of jeans. Or it might even be twenty thousand. It's it's something huge because you not only got to add water to get the um, uh, cotton, which is a horrendous industry. Cotton industry is just like super duper bad. Um, you've got to wash it and dye it and then wash it and then wash it again. And so the textile industry uses a huge amount of the water fresh water. For, the water footprint's enormous, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really bad. I think it's something that people are going to start to get wise on. And there will be a real push towards creating colours from a material science perspective that have less of an impact on the environment. After our conversation, I did some research and found that according to a 2005 UNESCO report, over 10,000 litres goes into manufacturing the average pair of jeans, and nearly 10,000 for a single-sized bed set of bed sheets. Chris has an affinity for one particular natural material, and that's spider silk. At the end of our conversation, he told me a fascinating tale about an individual who he knew from his time working at the Oxford University Silk Group and had faced many trials and tribulations regarding one particularly pesky shade of gold. I was working in back in Oxford in the silk group there, and I had finished my PhD, and there was uh, another PhD student called Tom Hasens who was just starting, and he was great fun. He was probably the most determined and thoughtful PhD student I'd ever come across. And what he did is that um, he was really, really interested in the gold in golden orb weaving silk. So golden orb weaving silk, which is made by spiders, has this beautiful sort of shiny gold colour. Um, but for some reason, depending on the day that you reeled silk from the spider, um, it could change from a bright silver colour to a bright gold colour. So clearly the spider was able to add something, a pigment, to that silk um, and change its colour, which is interesting, but why and what is it? And so he then embarked on a three-year, extremely stubborn and determined mission to work out what the gold is 
in Golden Orb Weaving Silk. Uh, this involved him first being challenged with the problem of collecting enough silk. So that involved reeling a lot of spiders, working out that actually you can extract it quite easily with ammonia and you'd end up with this sort of yellow solution. But, you know, we had no idea what it was. He had no idea what it was. So he took this yellow solution to the chemistry department and he took it, you know, thinking it's a small molecule. Chemists, they love identifying stuff. They have the sort of holy quadrilogy of uh, techniques, the NMR, the mass spec, the XRD, and the FTIR. And if you throw all of that, you can, like, you can tell me exactly what your chemical compound is. So he took it out to their analytical services, gave them a little vial of this stuff, saying, please don't use a lot. It took me a month to create like half a mil of this material. And so they, they took it out and he came back and the technician sort of said, yeah, I've had a bit of difficulty. So I've, I brought the other technician in just to have a little check and uh, sort of went away again. They came back another two weeks later and the technician was there with a the professor and the professor was like, I've been looking at this and, you know, we're still not 100% sure actually what this is. And so he goes away for another two weeks and he comes back and there are four professors in this room with the technicians saying that honestly we, we cannot resolve the structure of this we do not know what this molecule actually is and so tom's like seriously there's there's nothing like you know you can't work this out at all it's not a very big molecule i mean the mass spec says that and they're like no seriously like we're out of luck just can't do it and so tom then decided right well look if you can't work out what this is i'm just going to have to try and work it out myself. Um, this involved him entirely finding an abandoned HPLC machine, bootstrapping himself and rebuilding it, operating it from Belgium actually, using webcams and remote desktop. Um, <laughs> but after about three years he was able to finally work out this quite complicated three ring, three interconnected ring structure that is the gold in golden or breathing silk. Fantastic! We know what it is. Uh, we can even make it now using not organic synthetic chemistry, using enzymes because it's made naturally. So you run enzymes, you add really simple enzymes to try and create this structure because enzymes can drive something into a thermodynamic equilibrium and shift it, whereas you can't do that in a reaction vessel. So going back to nature to try and actually recreate this colour. And Tom can now make large amounts of the stuff. Problem is, we have no idea what it does. Literally no idea. We do not know why golden spider silk is golden. We have no idea. We can extract this molecule, we know what it is, but we have no idea what the biological function is. Is it an interesting plasticizer? Is it a sunscreen? Is it something that kills things on site, why the spider decides to make its silk golden as opposed to making its silk silver is a big mystery for us. And so there's still lots of unanswered questions when it comes to understanding what colour means in nature and what it could possibly be used for. Identification is by a big part of it at the very, very start, but ultimately you have to ask a natural question about the system and those can be incredibly difficult to answer correctly. Because we can always put our perception of what that colour means. Oh, it probably means this, it makes sense to me. But to design the experiment to prove functionality of a structure or a chemical, a colour, um, a behaviour, 
in nature is an extremely difficult one. And that's actually what makes it so exciting, because there's a lot of stuff we don't understand yet. Chris Holland and his research group work to unravel these mysteries in nature, with their focus being on natural materials. Chris has been involved in a range of fascinating public engagement and outreach projects, which can all be found online, and I highly recommend giving them a watch if you get a chance. Incredibly, we can also derive a number of different colours from radioactive sources. An interesting example of this is radium. In the early 1900s, it was fairly common for watches to have their faces painted using a radium paint, and this would allow it to glow. The painting was done by hand, and in this period of time, it was common for women to work in factories painting the radium onto the clock faces. At this point in time, the dangers of a number of different radionuclides was not particularly well known, and at this point, the women were told that it was perfectly safe to use radium, often painting their nails and their teeth with the substance that glowed. They were also commonly encouraged to point the brushes using their lips, as this would allegedly reduce the wastage that would have happened as a result of using rags or water rinsing. Unsurprisingly, this was followed with a number of cases of acute radiation poisoning, and the ladies were known as the radium girls. Nuclear materials can also have their colours used in order to elicit information about their properties and composition. I recently partook in a study which involved identifying the colour of a series of orange and olive coloured powders using a Pantone colour chart. This was part of a larger study. So I spoke with Nathan Thompson, a PhD researcher specialising in nuclear materials at the University of Sheffield. Nathan was the individual running this study and I was excited to discuss the applications of his research. So you could have something that has been illegally trafficked over a national border, um, which could be sort of seized, and then you want to sort of see, okay, one of the first things you see when you pick up a powder, say that's being tra uh, trafficked over a border, is you say, oh, it's a green powder. And what you want to sort of do is say, okay, so it's green, but from what sort of history has that come? So why has it become green? Why? Has it been heated to become green? Has it, is it just green by oxidation state alone? Is there, are there impurities that could be making it green? The situations could be anything from sort of like trafficking or you know a raid on a clandestine uh, chemical lab. There are multiple sorts of uh, situations for forensics in which you could seize these powders and examine their colour. What we've really based ours on has been the oxidation states of uranium. So obviously we have really vibrant colours for uranium dependent on the oxidation states um, of, of, the, of the atom. So, you know, we have um, uranium-4, for example, is, is green, very vibrant green. And then when we have uranium-6, it's yellow. So we can already, from that, determine the, um, the difference in the oxidation state. This study aimed to find a way of being able to estimate the processing history of uranium oxide materials. When heated to different temperatures for different times, uranium oxide will change in colour, ranging from orange to a dark green, and this can be used as an analytical test. Several others and I had the role of showing that human eyes were not the best judge for this kind of test. A lot of the analyses are carried out by someone looking at a colour chart like you did in the experiment. Um, you know, taking a colour chart saying, yeah, it looks like this colour in this chart, um, which is great, but as, as we saw, um, it's not very precise, it's the biggest point of that. To come to a conclusion on what colour it is, is very difficult to do, um, even if it's between multiple people, because multiple people see colours very differently. We're trying to eliminate that by this study. Nathan's method would involve using a camera to determine the colour of the powder and organising them into RGB characters. 
This is a system that describes a colour based on how much red, green and blue makes up this colour. Each colour component is measured on a scale of 0 to 255, with 0 colour being true black, and 255, 255, 255 being a true white. Doing an RGB analysis, we are quantitatively saying this is the colour. There's no or, or little subjectivity in that because a computer is, is analysing that for us and putting numbers towards the colour description. RGB particularly, so the first thing for me was, I'm not a colour scientist, but I knew about RGB. So RGBs and our TVs and, for the, and, and many different electronic devices. And for me, um, RGB, you know, on these sites, on these sort of crime scenes, for example, you may have people working on the site that don't necessarily know about the other colour spaces, but we all know generally about RGB. So that, that drove me for that. I thought the simplicity of it, um, it's also a very closed colour space. So the sRGB model is, is quite ringed off. You have some, uh, some colour sort of models um, and colour spaces are very extensive, but RGB is closed in and that gives us sort of more discrete values that we can choose from to describe a colour. One of the key elements behind this method was to remove all ambiguity when it came to identifying the colour of materials. When it comes to a crime scene involving radioactive powders, nuclear material, we need to be absolutely sure what we're looking at. We need to be absolutely sure of the signatures that we are attributing to that material and trying to find its history. We want, to be, we want the law to be able to find the right people, the right places responsible for that if they need to. And by doing an objective analysis, by using numbers, we are removing any, we're minimising the ambiguity, I should say, in how we um, in how we do that and that is really important in, in legal proceedings and just in science in general. A huge thank you to both Chris and Nathan for participating in this episode of Made of the Good Stuff. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode on the world of colour. Join us later for another podcast and follow our blog at madeofthegoodstuff.wordpress.com. See you next time.